0: Passion was stripped out of politics in the 90s because it appeared as though all the answers were there. We had technocratic solutions to everything. A pragmatically regulated free market was going to give all the answers. And therefore, politics became a question of think tanks looking at Swedish education policy and working out what lessons learned could be or best practice could be applied in the US
1: or the UK. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. As I mentioned once before on the podcast, I have a new book coming out very soon. It is called The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. And the first question, obviously enough, is why is it called The Identity Trap? And the reason for that is that I wanted to write a book which takes these ideas seriously which is measured in tone and analytical and attitude, and yet expresses why I think it is right to be worried about what some people might call identity politics or wokeness, what I call the identity synthesis. So when you think about a trap, it is something that has a lure that attracts you to it, it is something that's capable of tricking smart and well-intentioned people, and yet it is ultimately to the detriment of anybody who gets stuck in this trap. The law of the identity trap is that it claims to be the most principled, the most radical philosophy that takes on injustice, discrimination, marginalization of minority groups. It claims to be able to do that in a much more principled, more energetic way than competitors like philosophical liberalism. And yet, I think that it ultimately ends up being a political trap because it is incapable of understanding how we were able to make imperfect but genuine and large progress towards a more fair society over the course of the last 150 or 200 years. Instead of echoing Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther King Jr. or Barack Obama in recognizing the ways in which the United States and other democracies have failed to live up, to its universal promises. I'm not going on to demand that we live up to those ideals, but we include historically marginalized people under those humanist, universalist ideals. That, as Martin Luther King said in the civil rights movement, the check which African Americans were given by the United States may have been fraudulent, but they should demand to cash that check, not to rip it up. Instead of that, the tradition which I trace and describe, says give up on those universal ideals. Let's envisage a society in which how you're treated by the state and how we all treat each other comes to depend more and more fundamentally on the identity group to which you belong. And as I chronicle throughout the book, this has had real consequences, caused real problems in terms of how we educate children in the United States, even in terms of how we rolled out life-saving vaccines during the pandemic. I'm also concerned about the ways in which it is a personal trap. One of the promises made by the identity synthesis is personal. It's to say that everybody wants and deserves some amount of recognition, a feeling of equal standing in society, and that the way we might accomplish that is to encourage our young people to identify as strongly as possible by the intersection of particular identities at which they stand. And some people might criticize that as encouraging everybody to want to be their unique little snowflake. I think it's fine for people to want to be their unique little snowflakes. I think it's perfectly fine for people to want to feel seen in their individuality, in their idiosyncrasy. But we want to have a sense that there's something special about them. But that will never come merely from the intersection of their identities. That will never come from being treated in a particular way on the basis of the group membership. While we have to respect members of all groups, what ultimately allows people to have a sense of belonging and recognition is that they're being treated as individual. So this is why it's a personal trap as well. In the coming weeks, I will be summarizing for you the chapters of this book, giving you a real taste of it. But before that, I just want to answer one question, which I know will be on many of your minds, which is why write about this at this point? After worrying for so long about populism mostly, if not exclusively, on the right, at a time when It looks like Donald Trump has about as much of a chance of being elected president in 2024 as Joe Biden. Why focus on this? Well, let me assure you, I remain very concerned about the rise of right-wing populism around the world. I worry about Donald Trump, about Bibi Netanyahu, about Narendra Modi, about Viktor Orban, and all of those characters. And yet, I decided to write this book for a few simple reasons. The first is that I've written two books mostly about populism, as well as many episodes of this podcast and many newspaper articles. And thankfully, we now have a pretty good, healthy literature on this topic. We don't need another one from me. The second is that often the identity synthesis is leading us in the wrong direction, On really important issues. It's not just a matter of some young people going a little bit too far in their enthusiasm, which always happens. No, it is a matter of actually envisaging a society which I think goes in the wrong direction, one in which we will forever be more and more, not less and less, defined by the group into which we were born. And a third argument is that the identity synthesis and right-wing populism may superficially be opposed to each other, may in important ways have very different ideas and values, but politically one is the yin to the other's yang. If we want to beat populists like Trump, we need to formulate a serious critique of some of the ways in which part of a progressive movement has gone wrong. In order to offer to citizens a vision of an inclusive, diverse society in which they would actually recognize themselves, that they actually would want to live in. That's what it'll take to win the kind of commanding majorities against right-wing populists that we need to actually end the serious peril to democracy that persists. So please, order the book, read along with me. Each week, I will be summarizing one of the chapters in my own words, We will also have a persuasion book event to discuss the book. I would really love to be in conversation with you about these ideas over the next months. I really feel like I've done a tour of duty here, looking seriously at a set of ideas that has either been uncritically accepted or rhetorically maligned in the last years. I'd love to think about these ideas with you. The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. You can go and order it right now. My guest today is Rory Stewart. Rory is a British... Well, what doesn't he do? He is a British writer, politician, an academic, and an activist... He used to be the United Kingdom's Secretary of State for International Development. He is now the president of the charity Give Directly. He has walked across much of the world in some of its most dangerous places. And he is the author of The Places in Between, as well as most recently, How Not to Be a Politician, a memoir. In our conversation, we talked about the reasons for worries, failure in politics. What it would take for there to be a space for honorable people in our politics today in particular in conservative parties that are going more and more populist. A topic that is on my mind as I'm recording this introduction with the recent news of Mitt Romney's retirement from the United States Senate. We talked about why Rory continues to identify himself with the conservative tradition, despite the move of many conservative parties in a more extreme and populist direction. And finally, we talked about how much progress there has been in the fight against global poverty and why, according to Rory, we must nevertheless remain extremely vigilant, need a role for private charity in order to help the poorest in the world to thrive. Roy Stewart, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you have a new book coming out very soon in the UK. It has a very good title, Politics on the Edge, a memoir from within. I personally am partial to the American title, which is How Not to Be a Politician, So you've had some adventures and misadventures in British politics for the last 10 years. What did you learn from that about how not to be a politician and perhaps even how to be a politician? I think
0: the most fundamental thing I learned is how absolutely brutal politics is, that it feels to me that something about the way in which politics is done, the way in which you're selected, the incentives of campaigning, makes it very damaging to your mind, your body and your soul. And the public suffer. It contorts and creates these very strange personalities. And most importantly of all, it unfits you for governing. The skills that you need to get elected contradict many of the fundamental skills that you would need to be able to administer or govern a country well.
1: Take us inside this. You know, why is it that when really accomplished, public-spirited people like you enter politics, they get chewed up by the system a lot of the time. Why is it that the incentives of the system end up rewarding the worst kind of behaviour, bringing out the worst in people? And often, certainly when I look at the history of the United Kingdom for the last 10 years, rewarding the worst people and not rewarding the people who I think we would agree would be better in public service.
0: Well, I think it's partly that you're not selecting for somebody's ability to govern a country. You're not trying to find people who are strong at critical thinking or who are skilled managers or who have particularly impressive ideas. So it's not a selection process like you would select a CEO or a university professor. You're basically selecting through a party system. So the first thing that matters is what kind of people impress the party. And the people that impress the party in a UK system, tend to be people who've been engaged with party politics from a very, very young age, who've demonstrated their loyalty out on the street, campaigning, delivering leaflets, or have worked as a special advisor or assistant to a a minister or a member of parliament. And then when you enter politics, there are strong pressures to demonstrate loyalty to the party and the leader, and equally strong pressures to establish your name in the media and through social media, often through making very provocative comments, creating a very binary black and white vision of the world. So the combination of party media and campaigning means that the system selects for somebody who is going to very naturally produce very binary options produce things in very clear colours, who doesn't admit any form of complexity, doubt, humility, who's perpetually confident in their vision of the world. And that means that this is a, you know, perhaps a sort of mask which they put on in order to get elected. But the problem is the mask is painted with a poison, which when they take off the mask, the poison is still corroding their face. So when they sit around the cabinet table they have to demonstrate critical thinking. And critical thinking is the opposite of all those things. Suddenly they have to think about complexity. They have to be humble. They have to be open to other people's ideas. They have to be able to change their minds. They have to be interested in nuance and detail. None of those things are the things which enable a Donald Trump or a Boris Johnson to flourish in the first place.
1: Why is it that these pressures seem to be particularly pernicious on the right at the moment? I mean, I'm struck by sort of 15 or 20 years ago, the big topic among intellectuals was the death of social democracy, These social democratic parties, certainly across Europe, seem to be sort of failing and flailing. And to some extent, that's happened. But cultural left has in certain ways gone a little bit potty. But actually, the institutional left has shown some amount of resilience in many countries. And even in Britain, where for a number of years it looked like under Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party had gone so deeply off the rails, the party has managed to moderate itself in a kind of surprising way. And certainly in the Anglosphere, it now feels that it's a conservative party and the Republicans Um, uh, that have been most captured by those kind of developments. So do you think there's something about the fundamental mechanisms that is going to be equally applicable to both sides of the political spectrum? And just at the moment, there's a little bit of that differential, if you agree with that assumption? Or do you think there's something about the interplay of those mechanisms on the right that makes it particularly corrosive in that part of the political spectrum?
0: I think it is particularly corrosive on the right. I think right-wing populism is ultimately more problematic than than left-wing populism at the moment. Although there is a lot of left-wing populism going on, I mean, particularly in Latin America, there's been some very, very eccentric individuals elected, but they seem to be doing less damage than one would expect. They talk a big game about remodeling the constitution or abolishing the army, and actually they get into power and they seem not to do very much. So it's the right-wing populists that are the problem. And I think one fundamental problem for them, one challenge for the right, is that the right was traditionally conservative. It was traditionally about showing respect for history, tradition, constitutions. And for a number of complicated reasons, a defense of the status quo, an evolutionary attitude towards politics, a deference towards the past and the constitution, doesn't feel like a particularly viable, active, popular option, which means that the right has abandoned a lot of what used to anchor it and has instead embraced a more revolutionary mindset and, particularly, posing itself as standing for the people against the elite. They found a very, very rich vein in trying to present themselves in nationalist terms, in anti immigrant terms. Now, all these things were. Present, I mean, when I was a Conservative MP, those trends were there within the Conservative Party, but they were the minority fringe, even as recently as 2010, 2011, 2012. You know, David Cameron, who was basically a sort of centrist Conservative, referred to people who supported Brexit as closet fruitcakes and closet racists and nutters. So he was very much dismissive of this trend. But Certainly in the United Kingdom, that's taken over. And what we found with Trump and with Johnson is conservatives' very surprising willingness to, instead of showing deference to constitutions and to institutions, which is what they were supposed to defend, an incredible delight in challenging and wrecking those institutions and portraying them as being vehicles for the elite. So they sound almost like Marxists.
1: Yeah, there is something astonishing about that. In a sense, the British conservatives have often had an ability to refashion the country in surprising ways. I mean, I don't want to compare Margaret Thatcher to somebody like Boris Johnson. I think that there's better grounds for some of the impatience she had with the state of the country when she came to power and a more coherence, despite some disagreements I have, with the direction she wanted to take it in. But it was not, in essence, a conservative program either, certainly relative to where the country was in 1979, and probably not relative to where it was at any point in history, right? So I guess, is there a strange strand on the right that is actually quite revolutionary in many junctures of history? Or is there something kind of unique about this moment?
0: So the Conservatives wrapped into themselves in Britain two very different traditions. One of them was the old Tory tradition, and the other is the sort of liberal Whig tradition. The old Tory tradition was conservative in the sense of wanting to conserve the past. It was deferential towards the monarchy, the military in the 18th century, you know, even trying to bring back the old Stuart royal family. The Whig liberal tradition was much more radical economically. It was about free markets. It was about global trade. It was much more suspicious of tradition in the past. There's a lovely phrase from W.B. Yeats. Yeats was a great sort of traditional conservative, and he says of the Tory conservative tradition in Ireland and Britain, Burke, Goldsmith, Barclay of Cloyne, all hated wiggery. The political positions, the Whigs, all hated wiggery which he calls that levelling, rancorous, rational sort of mind that never looked out of the eye of a saint or out of a drunkard's eye. All's wiggery now, and we old men are massed against the world. So the idea of that part of the Tory tradition, which is partly the tradition of Edmund Burke, was always rubbing up against a much more radical embrace of capitalism. And in a sense, capitalism is, of course, very, very revolutionary. What Margaret Thatcher did in her embrace of radically liberated free markets is to disrupt most of the ancient traditions and institutions. She was unsympathetic towards the foreign office, the civil service, the traditional regulations and structures of the City of London. And she unleashed this extreme upheaval, you know, by giving council houses to working class people. She transformed the economic conditions of whole classes She was not sympathetic towards trying to preserve an old Britain. And I don't know whether this is true in the United States, but there's also a change in class terms in the composition of Conservative MPs. I mean, we focus on the fact that David Cameron and Boris Johnson went to Eton. We're focusing much less on the fact that increasingly the backbench MPs are often from much more working class backgrounds in the Conservative Party than they would have been 30, 40 years ago and have very little patience with a nostalgic vision of army empire or any of the things that used to hold the conservative party together
1: that's very interesting and i'm trying to think through the comparison to the united states i have two points of comparison first the ideological and then perhaps the class composition i mean on the ideological front you know the radicalism of a lot of the energy in the post-liberal space at the moment in the united states and i mean you can sort of think of Trump as a post-liberal, for that sounds nearly a little bit too grand and appellation of him, but there's also a lot of post-liberal intellectuals who are really trying to think through what that tradition would look like. And what's really striking in this context is that it's even more radical and revolutionary because Britain wasn't founded as a liberal country or state. It's a country which has been deeply shaped by liberal ideals for many centuries, but it's not a creedal nation. The United States is a creedal nation, which was founded on the ideas of liberalism and perfectly, of course, with egregious violations of those principles throughout the first centuries of the Republic's existence. But that, in fact, was one of the founding stones of what it is to be an American. And so to be a post-liberal in the United States is, in many ways, even more radical and revolutionary than it is in the British context. I mean, in class terms, I wonder whether there's a similar comparison here, which is about the nearly unnoticed passing of the WASPs. I've played this game with a few people in the last few weeks and months, you know, name the most powerful WASP in the country in the United States today. And it's actually practically impossible. What remains is a few people who are in the literal sense white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, but they are not part of the old WASP elites. So they're normally not mainline denominations and they're not from New England. So we are not, you know, part of the group that ruled the country for centuries and ruled it until a few decades ago. And that group has actually nearly entirely passed out of the dominant stretches of American public life. And that, I think, perhaps has led to a similar departure from the forms of small C conservatism and nostalgia that you described in the British case. Well, I couldn't agree
0: more. I mean, you know, I'm very struck. I was at Harvard on two different occasions in my life and... Of course, all the buildings and streets are sort of littered with cabots and lodges and all these kinds of people who reappear in American politics right through to the 1960s. And, you know, you read books about the 50s and 60s and you get a general sense that these kind of people from Yale are running the CIA and these Harvard professors are floating in and out of government and that Kennedy's sort of surrounding himself with these people. And I mean, obviously, Kennedy is himself a Catholic, but he seems to represent an echo of an early tradition, and that's before you get back to Henry Adams and the sense of these incredible sort of 19th century American dynasties. So I think that's right. And I think even when I was a young man first coming to the States in the mid-1990s, you got a sense that there were people like George Bush Sr. or Al Gore who seemed to come from these sort of more classic political dynasties patrician, extremely sort of patrician figures, right, right? with a grandeur, actually, that was quite different to Britain. And that really has faded in the United States. And in Britain, the same is true. I mean, it's striking in all these countries how the children of politicians are not faring well. Very interested in this in Britain. I began to notice that the people I knew whose parents were politicians, and therefore belonged to a sort of patrician conservative class, were not really flourishing. In fact, when it came to Brexit, Nicholas Soames, who was Winston Churchill's grandson, Dominic Grieve, who was the son of a politician, Richard Bennion, who's not just the son of a politician, but you know has generations of politicians, behind him, they all end up on the Remain side and they all end up getting thrown out of the Conservative Party by Boris Johnson. They become a sort of emblem of these kind of wets, this sort of left-wing Tory. So I think there is a question of social change and the type of politician that's required. Whereas for that group, they remain very interested in these sort of definitional figures in British political life, sort of Harold Macmillan, for example, who uh, was seen as a sort of rather strange, courteous, quite sort of cunning, but definitely on the left of the Conservative Party who'd created his political ethos through seeing the damage of the economic recessions in the 1930s and had stayed on the back benches for a long time. Those sort of figures didn't really flourish. The Conservative Party had created a sort of religion out of two figures in Britain, Winston Churchill and Margaret Thatcher, and they've forgotten really the traditions of people like Macmillan. And obviously everybody has forgotten the traditions of people like Gladstone because his party no longer exists in the same way.
1: Yeah, I mean, the last political dynasty but has genuine social roots in the world of a wasp in the United States is the Bush family. And of course, you know, Jack Bush enters the 2016 primaries as the favorite. It's hard to remember that now. And, you know, thus lamentably. And George W. Bush, who managed to become president already by sort of reinventing himself as a kind of Texan cowboy, despite his wasp roots, and that sort of worked through the 2000s, ends up as a kind of Cato-esque patrician defender of the American Republic, making sort of sly, implicit criticisms of Donald Trump. So it's really quite remarkable. You know, there is a tension,
0: obviously, between Plato's idea that what you're trying to do is find statesmen who are deliberately selected for particular types of intellectual, spiritual, physical qualities that fit them for the governing of the state and the way in which our systems work, which is presumably Plato would not be in favor of Donald Trump. But it's also true that this is partly about the collapse of the old party mechanisms in both Britain and the United States. One imagines that when the leaders were chosen by funny smoke-filled rooms of old boys sitting together, they would not have chosen Boris Johnson or Donald Trump. These people are sort of preternatural, charismatic outsiders so it's these sort of intermediate institutions, the stuff in between the people and the office of president, which has also vanished, which used to hold a lot of the values and the codes and determine what was and what wasn't acceptable behavior. Now, in the States, I put a lot of blame on Newt Gingrich. I think Gingrich was very important in exploding the way in which Congress worked in the 1980s. So I think the
1: conversation we've had so far is sort of intellectually really fascinating, but we open ourselves up to a very straightforward charge, right? Which is, well, look, these guys seem to have nostalgia for this old class of, you know, aristocratic politicians in Britain and the club of old WASP politicians in the United States. But isn't there a reason why they're being flushed out of the system? And wasn't the world over which they presided both unjust and in many ways quite ineffectual? And, And isn't that precisely why people like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump could come in and and sweep that aside. So I guess two questions. One is, is there anything from that most mostly conservative tradition that you think we should and we need to preserve? And then more broadly speaking, more ambitiously speaking, what would a conservatism for the 2020s or the 2030s look like that builds on the positive parts of that tradition that isn't guilty of those flaws and is actually capable of having a positive vision for what Britain or the United States or other democracies should be like.
0: Well, I think you're absolutely right. There's no point in nostalgia. And I think that this sort of patritional WASP tradition is exploded. I also think that the sort of consensus of the 1990s, the kind of Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, center ground politics has been destroyed. And although I have some sympathy for that moment in history, I mean, in some ways, the 90s were quite a positive moment in global history. We can also see the flaws of that. And the flaws were, I think, cruelly exposed in five different ways. I think that in answering your question, we have to deal with the fact that we've lost five fundamental faiths. We used to operate in a system where we believed that the best way to achieve economic growth was through a particular vision of free markets and global trade. We used to believe that economic growth and prosperity would necessarily lead to democracy, <laughs> we used to believe that democracy was legitimate and that the, our forms of Western democracy were deeply legitimate and just. We used to believe falsely that they would contribute to a liberal global order that we could describe and which would embody internationally all this stuff about democracy and markets. And finally, that all of this would exist in a consensus that the votes were in the center ground, that public opinion was sort of jar, very few votes at the extremes. And I think the experience of the 2000s and the 2010s was essentially smashed every one of those assumptions. 2008 financial crisis obviously wrecked the theories about economics. I think the rise of China wrecked the links between economics and democracy. I think the humiliations of the Iraq-Afghan wars destroyed the idea of the liberal global order. I think Black Lives Matter and increasing consciousness in Europe and the United States of the problems in our own societies destroyed a naive confidence and legitimacy of the previous system. And finally, social media destroyed the consensus and turned that bell jar into a kind of U-shape with the votes at the extremes and nothing left in the middle. So that's quite a long answer. But insofar as a conservatism for the 21st century is going to be viable, it needs to acknowledge those five catastrophic Collapses and produce a vision of politics which is capable of not pretending it can reinvent the centrism of Blair and Clinton, but instead offers something different.
1: Those, I think, the best three minute summary of the political transformations in the last 30 years that I've heard. But you failed the essay question, which is to say that it was an excellent analysis of where we're at and what challenges. A moderate politics, whether on the center-left for that matter or on the center-right, would have to respond to. But what do you think is the substance, whether in public policy or in values or in rhetoric of a conservative or more broadly, if you prefer, moderate politics that is capable of responding to those transformations in a way that feels intellectually adequate and that would actually speak to voters?
0: Well, I think that the first thing is that it's a politics that, and this sounds a bit strange, but it needs to be rooted in an explicit sense of shame. Moderate politicians of the sort that I value need to begin by saying, a lot is wrong. I mean, it cannot be a complacent politics. It needs to recognize the justifiable anger of people. It needs to acknowledge the many ways in which we're failing our own citizens. That our institutions are much shabbier, that our prisons are filthy, that poverty in our countries is completely unacceptable. Acknowledge that many people feel in a very precarious state, that they're clinging on and their lives are not fulfilling and that they did not get what they were promised. So I think that's the first thing. You've got to have a sense of shame and you've got to acknowledge the failure. Then I think a second thing is that you talked about rhetoric is that you need to I mean, if I fall back on Aristotle, you need to combine your logos, your rational argument, all your technocratic arguments about the right way to do things. And I think that's where moderates and the centre ground do have an advantage. I mean, we ought to be better at policy, we ought to be better at evidence, but it needs to be combined with the pathos, with the emotion, the ability to communicate emotion, and with the ethos, which is a sense of moral character, moral purpose. Or direction and i think the centre ground has lost all those three things in different ways it's tempted off the technocratic ground because it feels under pressure so it seems to be impossible for you know Rishi Sunak who in some ways is a more moderate politician than certainly than Boris Johnson or Liz Truss in britain to defend reasonable environmental policies at the moment because he can see a small electoral advantage in a particular group that will allow him to win by elections by trashing policies to prevent polluting cars. The same is true with Joe Biden. There was a perfectly rational, moderate policy of keeping a light footprint in Afghanistan, which would have been available to him, which would have prevented the Taliban from taking over at minimal costs to the U.S., But he was unable to avoid the binary choice between, you know, surge or total withdrawal. So there's that problem, right? A problem about making the moderate case a reality. But the other two problems perhaps more profound. Because of the domination, I apologize for my clock in the background. It's a sign of traditional Scotland happening on your podcast. I'll sort of let let it through for a second.
1: We will leave it as part of the authentic experience of a conversation. It captures your vibe beautifully. Thank you.
0: So the the second thing I think is that the passion was stripped out of politics in the 90s because it appeared as though all the answers were there. We had technocratic solutions to everything. A pragmatically regulated free market was going to give all the answers. And therefore, politics became a question of think tanks looking at Swedish education policy and working out what lessons learned could be or best practice could be applied in the US or the UK And so they abandoned words like loyalty, nation, sacrifice to the extremes of the left and the right, and created a very sort of banal, gray politics. And then I think the final thing is the ethos, the moral purpose, because the center ground became so, I mean, and it's an understandable liberal temptation. I mean, it's it's the fundamental strength and weakness of liberalism, which is to become so neutral and tolerant of positions, to be so allergic to talking about values, to be so utilitarianly focused simply on GDP per capita growth, that it lacked any sense of any higher purpose, any any point to the whole thing, apart from a slightly more skillful management of intractable problems. So I think, to finish my long lecture, the conservative movement needs to find an energy in the center which comes from harnessing the energy of the extremes. It can't avoid those extremes. It needs to take the sense of justice, equality from the left, and it needs to take you know, the sense of freedom from the right, and it needs to find in the tension between those principles its own energy.
1: I think that's excellent and deeply perceptive. I wonder if there's one aspect but. That- I would add, and perhaps it's related to the transformation of elites that we've been talking about earlier, right? So you used to have a kind of patrician elite in Britain and a kind of wasp elite in the United States, which was deeply misguided in all kinds of ways. And as you were saying, I don't think it's a matter of being nostalgic for them, but in a strange way, They did not, and this is the part of the anti-maritocratic argument that I take seriously, even though I find the sort of fashionable rejection of meritocracy in many corners of our intellectual life to be quite misguided. It had a sense of being lucky to be where they are, being privileged to be where they are. And hand in hand with that, I think it had actually a reasonable amount of respect for and compassion for people who are less fortunate, who are in different social strata. And I do think that there's something about the more meritocratic, self-confident, progressive, modern elite that is deeply influential now in Britain and the United States and and other countries that comes off as much more smug and judgmental. And perhaps that is sort of the element also of a sort of, you know, I was quite impressive, you know, government of the 90s and, and 2000s, but didn't have that in a kind of The culture war didn't yet exist, but perhaps even then there was a sense of, you know, these very talented people who are quite slick and who feel like they're the future and anybody who's not with them is a little bit of the past. In German, we always talk about the Ewiggestrigen, which was, you know, those were forever of yesteryear. You know, if you disagree with us, you're sort of stuck in this retrograde past. And I wonder whether that is part of what's going on. I think Britain is a country that in all kinds of ways doesn't afford a terribly high standard of living to people at the median. And so I think a lot of voters really are very angry at inflation and the incredibly high housing costs and so on. In America, there's a broad swath of a population that really has quite terrible and hard lives and of course there's racial level patterns to that. But the median American is really actually leading a pretty good life when you look at the income levels and what the houses look like and what cars they drive and so on. With stress around medical costs and sending the kids to college and all of that, but I don't want to underestimate. But I think the sort of the shame in that context, I think, would need to be rooted less in we're not providing you with the goods and more in We have become so smug about ourselves that you rightly feel judged by us and looked down by us. And it seems to me that that is where a lot of the energy comes from in a way that perhaps would need to be added to your account.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think maybe if I was addressing comfortable, median, middle-upper, middle-class American voters with nice houses and nice cars part of the sense of shame would be to say, look at American prisons. I mean, I think prisons are a very, very good test of our countries. The prisons are horrifying in the United States. They're disgusting. I was the prisons minister in Britain. I mean, I was very struck how isolated we are because prisons in any country are a sort of island. They're not like hospitals and schools where the entire population is interacting with them all the time. I was very struck going into prisons, how little I understood about how Horrifying the conditions in which we were keeping our fellow citizens were. Well. So it's things like that. You know, I feel the same about global poverty. I mean, I' so worried by the fact that in the eighties and nineties, you know, we were going to make poverty history. There was a huge movement, to the Millennium Development Goals of the UN and the Sustainable Development Goals. And now, basically, I feel I'm interacting with a lot of people who just don't really care about the fact that the number of people living on less than two dollars fifteen and Africa have gone from one hundred and seventy million in nineteen eighty to four hundred and seventy million today that there are you know seven hundred and seventy million people worldwide who cannot meet their most basic needs that fifty percent of the global population is living on less than six dollars a day. I mean unimaginably stressful, terrible lives without the slightest form of savings, incomes, investment, resilience, and yet we don't seem to care about that either. And that's partly about a lack of moral purpose. And it's also about the collapse of certain kinds of solidarity. So on the right, that movement in the 80s and 90s was very driven by the World Council of Churches, which had a very, very strong international presence. And on the left, by the trade union movement that had a very strong sense of international solidarity and care about these. Those institutions have collapsed. So I think we're in a very, very odd world where one of the challenges for politicians is moving people in terms of the daily obligations to our fellow citizens, not simply the grand heroic debates around climate, which are very important, but, you know, are taking place at a, a much greater level of abstraction, but the actual homeless person in San Francisco, the state of the... I mean, there is literally no reason why San Francisco cannot sort out its problems. I mean, it's a completely shocking astonishing, given the tax base of California, given the wealth of the companies located there, that something could be that badly administered, that American citizens can be living in those kinds of conditions. But I hear very little about that in the debate, just as we hear almost nothing about really interesting things about the future consequences of AI over the next two to five years. I mean, it feels to me as though American politics, British politics, European politics, if you were to take a time capsule back, the debate still sounds surprisingly like the debate of the 1980s. I mean, you don't get the impression that Trump and Biden have their finger on the pulse of what's happening with ChatGBT or exactly what Facebook's doing with its large language model.
1: No, and that's a point that was painfully underlined in congressional hearings of tech CEOs and so on in the United States. And since you mentioned global poverty, you're now the president of Give Directly. What is the state of global poverty? I was struck in your description of it that it is somewhat more pessimistic than the accounts I often hear about actually having been a you know, tremendous economic progress over the last 30 or 40 years, which has eradicated a lot of global poverty and lifted a lot of people up into the middle class. So why is it that the number of people who live in abject poverty has gone up in this kind of way? And what is it that we can do about that?
0: Well, I think partly the the problem is that the optimistic story was partly a story of the 90s and 2000s. It was part of the general optimism. And every year during that period, the number of democracies in the world was increasing, the world was becoming more peaceful. But actually, since 2014 and the rise of populism, we've had year on year of the world becoming more violent, more refugees, more internally displaced people, fewer democracies. Now we've got a swathe of military coups across the Sahel. And the story, the optimistic story that people like Steven Pinker used to tell, they never acknowledged how much of that was an Asian story. It was primarily a story driven by China, which lifted 700 million people out of extreme poverty, and to some extent by India and Bangladesh and Indonesia. But Many, many countries in sub-Saharan Africa, Malawi, had 70.3% of its population living in extreme poverty 15 years ago, and it has about 70.1% of its population living in extreme poverty today, during which time the absolute population has grown. (laughs) So the proportion remains constant, the absolute numbers skyrocketing. So I think it suits a particular lazy liberal consensus to think that extreme poverty is sort of solving itself that the world's all moving in the right direction and we can all move on to worry about climate change and AI to the exclusion of worrying about extreme poverty the truth is we never fix that issue in many ways the issue is getting worse and our attention is distracted our international aid budgets are collapsing donors are giving less and less money and you know it's frustrating for me as you say I run give directly and there have been two revolutions in the last 10 years one is that mobile money in Africa allows us to deliver money directly to people's phones without going through governments. And the second is an explosion in randomized control trials, academic research, which demonstrates that cash is more effective than almost any other development intervention. You would have thought with those two things, it would be very easy to get tens of billions of dollars going into direct cash support. But the truth is that so many governments and so many private philanthropists don't seem to want to engage with the issue of extreme poverty in Africa?
1: So if the progress has mostly been in Asia and particularly in, in China, as so well as other countries like Vietnam and so on. And there's also some deep-rooted skepticism, you know, by serious people like Bill Easterly about the impact of development aid and so on. What is the prospect for helping people who continue to live in serious poverty? out of it? Is it going to be through traditional development aid? Is it going to be through these direct cash transfers? Is it going to be through reforms of the economic system that might eventually allow some of these African nations to have a similar development trajectory to that enjoyed by those East Asian countries? Is it by political pressure that hopefully leads to some amount of reduction in corruption in these countries, etc. I mean, is it all of the above? You know, what is the realistic path here to reduce poverty in the kind of transformative way that we've seen in some parts of the world. So I think you need
0: to distinguish very clearly between what the root causes of poverty are and what foreigners in particular can do to address them. So you're absolutely right in your overall accounts of underlying problems. Clearly, governance, corruption, the commitment of countries to development is incredibly important. And the countries that are doing best whatever we think of the nature of these regimes, but countries like China, other countries, Ethiopia, Rwanda, had elites that were very, very strongly committed towards development and were very focused on it and arranged their countries around it. And in the absence of that, it's difficult to develop. But there's not a great deal that outsiders can do to take a country that isn't committed to that. I mean, you can send in advisors and consultants, but fundamentally, what does it take to make the government in the Democratic Republic of the Congo or the Central African Republic really make development their priority? That's not something within the gift of the international community. The second thing that's very important, of course, you're right, is public infrastructure, dams, bridges, schools. That's more easy to do. You can borrow money from the World Bank, you can borrow money from the Chinese, and you can build those things. Industrial strategy, trade policy, all this sort of thing can be quite helpful. But those things are very difficult. I mean, changing the global trading system so that Niger gets more of the income from its uranium instead of being controlled by international mining groups is something that we haven't managed to do for 100 years. And I personally think it would be pretty frustrating believing that you're going to be able to change the fundamental inequities of global trade, right? So that leaves us with what can you practically do to improve the lives of the extreme poor today and allow them to benefit from growth? And there, I think almost nothing can beat cash. Cash is now demonstrated. These randomized control trials are literally taking a treatment group and a control group like a medical trial, where you're giving $550 to the treatment group, you're giving nothing to the control group, you're studying over 3, six, nine, 12 years. The results are absolutely staggering. You know, we're finding in villages in Rwanda that $550 within about three months, the amount of electricity in the village goes from 40 to 80%. The number of roofs goes from 40 to 80%. The number of latrines hits 100%. Explosion of kids in school, fantastic improvements in nutritional indicators, bone density stunting, new businesses being created. All of this through this very strange magic thing called cash, because cash is something for our century. It's respectful. It's not the global north coming and saying to somebody in a village, this is what you need to do. I'm going to capacity build you. It's saying, I trust you. I respect your dignity. Here's the cash. You know your needs and priorities better than I do. And you can put the money to work much more efficiently
1: than an NGO can do. So a very clear call to action as the holiday season is slowly creeping up on us. If you want to do some good for the world, and you buy Rory's argument, give directly and other organizations that send cash to some of the most needy people in the world. I have many more things that I'd love to talk to you about, but I want to go towards the beginning of the end of a conversation with a couple of personal questions. The first is that you've worked at this point in many different arenas, including academia politics, and now the charitable sector, how do you think about making impact in the world? Which of those variations of your career have you found to be the most fulfilling? And, you know, young people listening to this podcast and trying to figure out how can I make an impact in the world and hopefully have a life that I find to be worthwhile, what kind of considerations should they be asking themselves? I think the fundamental question for
0: a younger person is what is it that interests you and fulfills you? What I mean by that is I often meet young people and they will say, and this is a point my wife often makes to me, somebody will say, what I'm interested in is maternal healthcare, infant maternal healthcare. And really the response needs to be, no, 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 understand yourself better because this can mean anything. This could mean sitting in an office in the World Bank in Washington writing policy, or this can mean delivering babies in a village in the Congo and everything in between. (laughs) And the challenge in all of our lives is to work out what kind of person you are. Are you somebody who prefers writing the policy, which potentially is making a 0.1% difference in hundreds of millions of lives? Or are you somebody who prefers delivering the baby, in which case you're making a, I don't know, a 30% difference in an individual's life? And in my case, the most fulfilling thing I did was to run a small nonprofit in Afghanistan 15 years ago. I loved it. We had about 300 people. We worked in a couple of city blocks. We restored buildings. We brought water supply, sanitation, a clinic, a primary school. But basically, I just loved working with the community. And I loved the speed with which we were able to do things, the instant impact, the buildings going up, our ability to get in conversations about cultural heritage and education and health. I like that much more than being the Secretary of State for International Development in Britain, where I had a $20 billion a year budget. And where the decisions I was making is, do I spend $150 million on education in Ethiopia or $200 million in education in Ethiopia? I mean, those kind of questions didn't really interest me. Now, you can make the case that I was having more impact on the world as the Secretary of State for International Development with a $20 billion budget but in terms of fulfillment, in terms of feeling a satisfying change in influence, I felt it much more at the level of managing an organization of 300 people. Another way of putting it is that I would much rather be the colonel of a regiment of 600 people or the captain of a ship than being a general or an admiral.
1: I have a related, if perhaps a little more trivial question, which is that you're also somebody who knows the world very well, who has lived in Britain and the United States and other places, but who's also spent real time in Afghanistan and Iraq and lots of other places. It strikes me that it's a part of a culture today to sort of think of travel as virtue. I mean, two things that are, you know, truly virtues in the 21st century is working out and traveling. But a lot of travel, you know, it's either sort of city break in a nice city somewhere, Or even, you know, when you go a little bit further afield, it's, you know, the sort of backpacking tourism where you hang out with other backpackers in particular kinds of spots and so on. If people want to go and actually see the world and understand the world a little bit better, what do you recommend they do? What form of living or what form of traveling will actually allow people to come away with an enriched understanding of the world and other people and cultures? So
0: for me, what changed my life was not traveling. I spent 21 months walking. I mean, literally not getting in a vehicle, just going on foot 25, 30 miles a day across Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and Nepal. And what had the profoundest influence on me was the experience of being in remote village houses and just spending 550 nights in those houses and getting a sense of what people were talking about, thinking about the way in which the culture operated. I mean, I would say anybody who is interested in international affairs seriously wants to be a diplomat or work for the UN or work for the charitable sector and who's young enough to do it should put themselves in a remote village in somewhere like Malawi and try to learn somebody else's language and get a sense of the lives of people in difficult positions in rural areas, because you're not going to get much of that working out in a gym in Barcelona.
1: Rory Stewart thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show if you too have been enjoying the podcast please be liked rate the show on iTunes tell your friends all about it share it on Facebook or Twitter and finally please make suggestions for great guests